A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And here we are with part three of Sisters of the Revolution, our ongoing series on uh, uh, girls' education in, uh, in the modern era, um, Jewish education, formal Jewish education. And we left off in part two um, discussing the early attempts we talked about in Germany and the uh, opposition. We talked about the uh, writing of the Chafetz Chaim, uh, which would allow, gave the uh, framework to allow teaching Torah to girls in modern times. And in that context, I want to mention a correction I received from no less an authority than Dr. Rachel Rachel Manakin herself, Manakin herself, um, the one who wrote extensively on the topic, one of the great, uh, greatest researchers around uh, today of Galicia, uh, Jewry and history. And um, she um, has written about Beis Yaakov and the founding of Beis Yaakov and the context of the time. And a, and, and uh, she responded to the last episode, the privilege of receiving her response, and and I'll want to read it, part of it to you. You might want to read the post that I posted at the Svarim blog uh, in regards to the Chavetz Chaim's Heter um, about Torah education for girls. As we show there, the Chavetz Chaim's Likute Halachis with the footnote on Torah education for girls was published in 1921 or 1922, and not 1911, as claimed by some. Um, so if you go to that Svarim blog post, then which I suggest you do, you'll see how they, she and her husband established that the, how I had said, like uh, many sources bring, that the Chavetz Chaim's writings had been published in 1911, which was before Beis Yaakov was founded, which is before World War I, which is before girls' education became a fact on the ground, when in fact the, uh, she proves that it actually was a decade later, it was in 1921, earliest. 
And that means that the Chavetz Chaim was writing this footnote when girls' education was already a fact on the ground, was already an established reality. When Beis Yaakov was already several years old, when there were other girls' educational systems, as we'll see in today's episode in Lithuania and in other parts of Poland. And, um, and in that context, the Chavetz Chaim uh, was writing about how Torah study or Torah teaching for girls is permissible and actually a great mitzvah uh, in modern times. So that's, that's a very important correction and was a privilege to be able to correspond with, uh, with her. Um, also, the, I, I, in the interim, in between uh, part two and part three, I was also had the privilege to be interviewed on another uh, podcast, uh, the Headlines uh, podcast by uh, a very competent interviewer, um, Aaron Parnas. It was a, very enjoyable. And it was on this very topic. It was about the founding of Beis Yaakov and the girls' education and the permissibility of teaching Torah to girls and the rabbinical opposition and later support for formal education. And uh, we actually covered some of the topics that we're discussing in this uh a series, so you might want to listen to that as well. The last thing that I want to mention in this context is sort of related, not directly, um, something else I do. I have together with my writing colleague, uh, Davi Safir, we write a history column for the Mishpacha magazine. And just last week, we mentioned something about Beis Yaakov, so it's kind of related to girls' education. And because it was Yom Kippur, we wanted more of a solemn, poignant, uh, inspirational column in uh, in honor of the season. So we wrote about a newspaper reporting about a a um, a, a gathering in Chicago uh, during World War II, during 1943, in memory of what was then believed to be the the uh, suicide or the martyrs of the 93 Beis Yaakov girls in Krakow who had chosen to take their own lives rather than be defiled by the Nazis. And there was a memorial gathering in their memory taking place in Chicago, and it was reported in the papers, and we discussed that. So I got a lot of response from it. I actually was nervous when we wrote it that the response that we would get would be that we're you know, um, bus, myth busting, where we called it a legend and uh, we alleged that it wasn't true, the story. And yet there was this memorial gathering that in the collective memory of the United States Jewish community at the time, they did believe it. They could not verify the facts, obviously, in real time. It was a very chaotic situation during the Second World War War and communication wasn't that great. So I was nervous that we would get accused of myth busting and you know, a holy legend like that, we don't want to be, especially in Kippur time, we don't want to be accused of myth-busting. Instead, we got accused of the opposite. Uh, apparently, many readers missed the word legend at the beginning or did not know how to define the word legend at the beginning of the column. And, um, and they said that we were passing off an untrue story as true. Um, so we were not doing so, obviously, because first of all, we wrote that it was a legend. And... Uh, you know, take take a look at any dictionary of what the word legend means, and it definitely does not mean a true story. And the second thing is is that it, it's it's something that uh, it's important in history in general is that um, 
is that we're to discuss the process of how legends are accepted. And we're, the focus was on the memorial gathering. The people at the time did believe it. And how did they react to it? And uh, how was it reported in the news? And how did the Jewish community, the traditional Jewish community in the United States react to it? And what type of memorials did they do in these girls' memory? And the importance of how legends affect society is no less important than whether this story happened or not. It's, it's a reality that it had a historical effect, and that's something that must be examined through the microscope of history. Um, so that's, that's, that's definitely uh, an important aspect of it. In addition to that, in addition to that is, is that if, again, I, I work in Yad Vashem, and, or at least before this pandemic started, when Yad Vashem was actually open, then it was possible to work there, um, if you know the, you know, the first thing about Nazi ideology, and once you get into the story of how the Nazis interacted with, um, with the Jews, uh, vis-a-vis their racial ideology, um, you know that the story couldn't have happened. Before you read any of these great articles out there disproving it, you don't need all that. If you know the slightest thing about Nazi racial ideology and how it was carried out in practice, a mass story like that could never have happened, and, and it's just too far-fetched to even uh, imagine. But I think we'll get into that perhaps another time. What I want to get back to, I only mentioned it because it's related to Beis Yaakov and girls' education, but we already spent too much time on it. So let's get back to our primary focus here, where we talk about the pioneers of, of uh, girls' education in Eastern Europe, and that all happens as a result of World War One. World War One brings the German army into Eastern Europe, um, the Austro-Hungarian army into certain parts of Eastern Europe, but primarily the the uh, German army, um, and uh, and the German occupation, um, civil the civil occupation. They start to they start to the civil authorities start to organize life in uh, in all aspects in the areas that they, they, they begin to occupy um, as a result of the, uh, not defeat, but the, um, the, uh, the, the, the Russian army being pushed back uh, deep into Russia, and therefore Germany now occupies all this area. So there are German rabbis that arrive on the scene together with the German army, some as chaplains, some as working for the German government, and the early girls' schools are a direct result of the, this presence of new German rabbis on the scene. How does that happen? So we'll give it as an example, the Chavatzeles school in Warsaw. What happens is, is, um, is that there's two rabbis, rabbi doctors, who come along with the German occupation authorities. There's Rabbi Dr. Emanuel Karlbach and Rabbi Dr. Pinchas Kohn. The Pinchas Kohn was the rabbi of Ansbach in Germany. Emanuel Karbach was the rabbi at that time, earlier had been uh, in Memel, which is, you know, Prussia, German-held German Prussia, but it's on the border of Lithuania. So there were a lot of Eastern European Jews there. He had an exposure, but at this time he was already the rabbi in Kelm, which is on the other side of Germany. Um, so these two are community rabbis, but now they are, uh, and they both have doctorates from German universities, and they are working for the German occupation army. Now, their influence on Polish Jewish life is decisive because they, way beyond um, 
um, you know, Jewish education in general or girls' education specifically because they're the ones who found the Agudas Yisrael in Poland. They're the ones in 1916 who um, they they are they, they together they meet the Gareba and different representatives and different activists in Warsaw. They're based in primarily in Warsaw, and they they uh, together they form and organize and establish Agudas Yisrael of Poland, which becomes the main center of Agudas Yisrael in the interwar period and the basis of Agudas Yisrael till today. So. That's why Emmanuel, Emmanuel Karbach and Rebbe are so famous, because they're the ones who started Agudis Yisrael in Poland. Just kidding, they're not very famous at all, but it's a mystery because their role in history was very decisive, and they should be famous. So just a little bit about these people in, in general. Um, Rebbe Pinchas Kohn was a, continued, even after World War I, to be a major leader, one of the primary leaders of the world, Agudis Yisrael, um, from his base in Germany and, and all three Knessia Gedailos of Agudas Yisrael in the interwar uh, time. And then he escapes to Israel at the beginning of the war um, and passes away shortly after, the Second World War and passes away shortly after. But Emanuel Karlbach, I'll be honest, I got a bit confused when when um, looking into the, the Karlbachs because I always get mixed up. It was such a huge family and and a huge rabbinic family, primarily, and and I I just got mixed up, so I tried to organize it myself just to figure out what all the branches of the Karlbach family are to see where Rabbi Emanuel Karlbach fits in. So this is this is just giving you a basic uh, background. So you have the original patriarch of the family is lo and behold Rabbi Shloima Karlbach, um, who was a, a rabbi in Lübeck in in Germany. And um, and uh, and he has twelve children, eight boys and four girls, and he has has several sons who are in business, bankers, and and um, and so on. And he has several sons who are rabbis. Uh, one of them was the famous, for example, just for example, one of them was the famous Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Kalbach, who is going to come up in our story also because he's involved in girls' education in Lithuania. But he becomes later famous as the rabbi in Hamburg, and he and his family are are killed by the Nazis in Riga during the Holocaust. Um, you have uh, another son of his, who's Moshe Karlbach, um, who is also a businessman. But his his uh, his grandson, um, his son went to study in the Mir Yeshiva, Raftali Karlbach, and his grandson is today Rabbi Yaman Karlbach, also of the Mir Yeshiva. Um, you have uh, a, a Another son, Rab David Karlbach, who passed away young, and then he had a son, Rab Naftali Karlbach, who was a rabbi in Berlin and later in New York City, and his son was the famous Shlomo Karlbach. But he had other sons. Um, there was he had another son, interestingly, who was a banker, um, who was uh, who was, I'm sorry, who was a rabbi. Another another son who was a rabbi. Excuse me, I skipped him. Rab Ephraim Karlbach. Who was the rabbi in Leipzig, and his son was a very interesting individual, Azriel Karlbach, who um, who studied at the Tel's Yeshiva and at the, I think the Mir Yeshiva, also if I'm not mistaken, and then left traditional Jewish life. He left religion completely, and he um, became a journalist and, and later embraced Zionism and 
later embraced Eastern European Jewish culture, and he he moved. To, he he was a reporter in Warsaw for a period of time, and he fell in love with Warsaw. There's this incredible, almost like a hespit, a eulogy that he gives for Jewish Warsaw after the war, which I personally love. I quote it sometimes when we're in Warsaw, and uh, he go, talks about the Jewish cemetery and the Yiddish writers and and Jewish culture and the Jewish communal life and the pulsing urban. Jewish life of Warsaw and the interwar, which was completely wiped out later on. And Israel Karlbach actually uh, moves to Israel and becomes one of the head editors and writers for Yediot Achronot, gets into a fight with the editor of Yediot Achronot and leaves and starts, becomes the founder and editor of Ma'ariv. Um, so he's he was involved in Yediot Achronot and Ma'ariv. He was involved in other newspapers for a period of time also. In any event, we get back to the Karlbachs. One of the other sons of this Shloyme Karlbach was Rabbi Emanuel Karlbach. By the way, he had his daughters. Shloyme Karlbach's daughters were went on to become pretty famous also. One of them um, married a Leopold Rosnak, who was a rabbi, but became a, a patriarch of the Rosnak family, academic family of philosophers. And Avinom Rosnak today, is, I've heard lectures from him and He's a, a famous uh, Jewish philosopher. Um, there's the one other one of the Karlbach daughters married a Kohn, whose son was was Chaim Kohn, the Attorney General and later Supreme Court Justice in the State of Israel. Either way, you go on and on and on. It's a very prominent family, the Karlbach. So one of the sons is this Rabbi Emanuel Karlbach, and he is is in um, in he and Rabbi Pinchas Kohn. Um, they, they are, um, they are involved in the, in the founding of the Chavatzela schools for girls in Warsaw. By the way, when Emanuel Karbach goes back to Kelm, uh, after the war to be to his rabbinical position, he founds the school for girls. And he ironically calls it Yavne, which we're going to see was also a school for girls in Lithuania at the time. Um, in any event, so, so these, these, these two rabbis, they, Start besides for starting Agudas Yisrael, they also start the modernization of Orthodox education in Poland. They they needed a lot of reform, and they convinced the religious Jewish community in Warsaw that it needs reform, including the Hasidic community, including the Ger Rebbe. And one of the things they started is the girls' school, Chavatzelas, and that eventually becomes a whole network of schools in Warsaw, near Warsaw. Um, in fact. Uh, becomes so prominent that the first Beis Yaakov, remember this is not Beis Yaakov, this is Chavatzelos, this is a different organization that started in 1916 before Beis Yaakov. But the first Beis Yaakov National Conference in Poland was held in 1925, I believe, we'll get to it. Where was it held? At Chavatzelos in Warsaw. And all the resolutions of Beis Yaakov are taken at this place, at this location. So they use this location to to uh, you know, expand the Beis Yaakov movement, uh, there was a prominent Chavatzela school in Kalish, in uh, you know, a very famous uh, Jewish town in, in more west uh, from from Warsaw, from Ludz, and in other towns there. So it had it was it, it sprung around, it grew. There was quite a few students who attended these schools, and it was a successful movement. Another girls' uh, school movement was started in Lithuania, the Yavne school system. And Kovna and Tells, the yeshiva and Tells was heavily involved. The rabbi, the rav, the Tells the rav, Yosef Leib Bloch, 
was very much involved in. There was a, eventually in Tells there was a teacher seminary in high school. They used Hebrew as a language of instruction. You're talking at a time where Yiddish as a language of instruction was considered the the socialists, the Bundists, the communists. They used they used Yiddish. Um, the, to use Hebrew was either considered Zionist or very religious because you used Hebrew, the holy language. So in Yavna they used that. Um, it was in other towns and it had a lasting influence. I mean, until today there's an influence of Yavna both in name and of the structure. Um, now, how was that started? So you had, like I mentioned, Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Karlbach, who I mentioned as the rabbi of Hamburg. Um, he's not yet the rabbi of Hamburg at this point. Um, so he was involved in the founding. Now it was known as, when he started it, he was known as the Kaubach Gymnasium. And uh, at first the traditional elements of Lithuanian Jewish society would not want to send their kids to this in Kovna. He founded it in Kovna in Lithuania during the during World War One. They wanted to send their kids to a German school, right? Remember, it's supervised by the German civil administration. And the rabbi of the school wears a German army uniform. So they're very skeptical about this school. So it's founded as a boys' and girls' schools in Kovna. And it has three lasting influences. This Rebbe Karlbach leaves with the school system three lasting influences on the Lithuanian traditional religious education of the interwar period. Number one, schools for girls. It had been unheard of before that. And now in Kovna, and later on we'll see in Tells and Panovich and other places, they have schools for girls. Also the idea of education reform, similar to what his brother was doing in Warsaw, convincing the Hasidim that they need to have education reform. So he was doing the same thing to the Litvaks in Lithuania, that they need to reform the Cheder system. The old way doesn't work anymore. You need to do it. You need to, to just modernize it and refreshen it up. And the third thing he leaves them is Tairim Derech Eretz. The ideology of Tairim Derech Eretz has a lasting influence, much more than in Poland, it has a lasting influence, and especially as far as tells her, Yosef Leibloch very much appreciated certain aspects of the Tairim Derech Eretz ideology, and it was definitely incorporated into the, system, the educational system to a limited extent, not to the full extent, to the girls' schools more than in the boys' schools, but to a limited extent. The influence of German Jewry on Eastern European uh, Jewish life, especially in the educational realm, cannot be underestimated. So the Telzerov, like I mentioned, together with another fellow, Dr. Leo Deutschlander, who we're also going to come back to as far as Beis Yaakov is concerned, eventually they found the, the, the Yavna schools, remember the Yavna schools are both boys' schools and girls' schools, they found close to 100 schools throughout Lithuania in the interwar period. That includes the teacher seminaries and the large schools in the places like Tells and Panavision Kovna, and it includes the elementary schools in the small towns, and, and of course, it's including boys' schools and girls' schools. So you see that it was seen as one system. Um, Dr. Deutschlander, Leo Deutschlander, who, who we're going to get back to because he's very involved in Beis Yaakov, and he's very involved in Angudis Yisrael and the Karen HaToyra and the fundraising. So he's serving as a liaison between the German uh, occupational government and during World War I and the Lithuanian Jewish communities. And he's involved in the founding of the Kovna School and in expanding it. And, and that included these girls' schools uh, as well. If we go specifically to the um, to the one in Tells, so the the uh, much of the many of the classes were in Hebrew, like I mentioned in the high school. 
which was established in 1921, and it was famous all over Lithuania because it had a very strong religious education, and it had a very high standard of general studies. You have to remember that that it was recognized by the Lithuanian government. It was accredited, like Beis Yaakov would be, like Chavatzelas was in Warsaw. All these schools wanted to be approved by the governments, and therefore they incorporated uh, um, um, you know, the, whatever was required for general studies. Um, many rabbis and Orthodox Jews around the whole uh, Zamush uh, area of Lithuania sent their daughters to the to the high school, to this elite Yavna high school in, in Tels or in Kovna. And, um, and, uh, and um, um, it, it became a very popular, very, uh, very successful, successful school. They graduated classes from the school, from the teacher seminary, and, and you know, it lasted until the Soviet occupation at the beginning of, of the Second World War, where they disbanded all religious schools. But um, the... Um, the, the this Yavna chain um, was supervised by first by it was considered very much belonging not belonging but supervised by Tells and the Tells Yeshiva and the Tells of Rav Yosef Leiman later on by his son Rav Mitzvah Blach and and the, in, in fact when we go to Panevish on the tours of Lithuania we go to visit the town of Panevish and the what's today considered the Jewish community center is not really that many Jews in Panovich, but it is a Jewish community center where we always visit, and there's someone who shows us around, and and we sign the book there, and it's a whole, and you know, we see a video, and it's a whole part of our day when we go to Panovich. So the Jewish community center today is was the girls' school. That was it was part of the Avna system. I think it might have even been called Beis Yaakov, ironic, you know. I don't, you know, you have to, you know, it was in Lithuania. It wasn't exactly part of the Beis Yaakov system of Sarishnir. But it pass, I have to double check that. I think it might have even been called Beis Yaakov in Panovish, but it was definitely part of the Yavne school system. And the Panovish Rav, or Beis Yaakov, was heavily involved in 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 that uh, in that school. Um, interestingly enough, with the name Yavne, it was a popular school for uh, popular name for schools at the time. I mentioned that Rabbi Emanuel Karabach himself. His school was Chavatzelis, but when he went back to Kelm and he started a girls' school, he called it Yavne, right? And then you have these Yavne schools in Lithuania, which are affiliated with Tells, which are started by these German rabbis and activists. But then you have another school system called Yavne in Poland, not in Lithuania. And that Yavne is affiliated with the Mizrahi. It's part of their Tachkemoni school system. And that was also for boys and for girls in interwar Poland. Separate schools, boys' schools, girls' schools, and it was they had their rabbinical school Tachkamoni in Warsaw, and they have these Yavne Tachkamoni uh, schools in uh, throughout Poland. I remember hearing Rabbi Aaron Leib Steinman describing how the Tachkamoni school in uh, in Brisk, where he grew up, was considered the elite school, but he wasn't an elitist, and his father neither was his father, so he went to the simple cheder uh, um, in the school. He, he said it wasn't as good. The learning wasn't as good as the as the Tachkamani uh, uh, school, uh, but uh, but he yet he he still uh, went to the simple cheder, and I think he turned out all right anyway. But the the uh, the Yavna schools of the Mizrahi were again, but it's religious schools for both boys and girls, and it's Zionistic. They used Hebrew as a major language, not not exclusively. They also used Polish and Yiddish, like the. Um, like the Agudas uh, Yisrael schools, 
Chorev um, and the Aliyah Israel schools, they didn't exclusively use uh, Hebrew. Um, but, uh, but they, but it was a big emphasis, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Zionism and, and everything. So you have these school systems uh, starting independently again of, of Beis Yaakov. Uh, I mentioned recently in a Borough Park episode that there was a girls school, a religious Orthodox girls school started in Borough Park in 1930 called Shalamis. Now, 1930s way after Beis Yaakov starts, but again, you see that there are girls' schools starting in the traditional elements of society, uh, independent of the Beis Yaakov name. So and here we finally get to the founding of Beis Yaakov itself. Um, and we, we come to Sarah Shanir, the personality of Sarah Shanir. And the reason that she goes down in history, despite the fact that everyone else is also fi- founding schools at this time, is because first of all, her success went beyond anyone's. I mean, the spread of the movement, it, it actually became a movement. It's hard to call any of these other school systems a movement. They might have been schools, individual schools, or even a, a school system, but it was far from a movement. The second aspect of it is that she was a woman who founded it independently um, before Agudis Yisrael threw their backing behind her, which took a couple of years um, in the infrastructure. And uh, and she was a woman operating in Hasidic Galicia, uh, you know, in, in against all odds on the fringes of, of traditional society. And she went ahead and, and did it. And also the lasting influence, of course, of Beis Yaakov, uh, which, which puts her in a very prominent uh, place in Jewish history. So where does, where does her story begin? So she grows up in a Hasidic home. The family was Bel, you know, Belzer Hasidim in Krakow. And she um, you know, was a very bright uh, individual. She was self-taught in many ways. She was well-read and well, very well-versed in many secular general subjects and knowledge and very intellectually curious. She loved nature. She loved the outdoors. She loved traveling. She kept a diary. So we actually know a quite a bit of, of her inner world from her own writings. Unlike many other historical figures, we don't have to uh, conjecture or make up stories. We can actually know what she was uh, thinking and what her feelings were and her ideology and her outlook was because of her, her own writings. Um, so she gets married, and it was a lousy marriage. She got divorced. Uh, she didn't like the marriage. Seems that she was more religious than her husband, and she didn't, she didn't want to compromise on those religious beliefs. She was definitely very deeply religious, um, and it was, it was you know, of utmost importance to her, her, her uh, religious life, uh, throughout her life. And so she's now single, and World War I breaks out, and she goes, like mo- many Galicia Jews, she goes to, she flees as a refugee to Vienna. And there she's exposed to, to what's ironic about all the stories we've been saying until now is the influence of German Jews on Eastern European Jews. We have the founding of all these schools is by German Jewish rabbis. And here, Sarah Shanir, we finally have one who, she wasn't a German Jewish rabbi, it's not the influence of Jewish. She's from a Hasidic home. She's a Galicia Jew. We, this is our own. We don't need any yucky help over here. It turns out that over here also was with yucky help because, because, uh, the German Jewish influence had a decisive influence on, 
Sarah Shanir's uh, life direction because in several stages and in many ways. Number one is because she's exposed in Vienna. She meets up, she goes to shul, she wants to daven in shul, and she happens to attend the shul of a fascinating individual named Rabbi Dr. Moshe David Flesh, who was a student of Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Breuer, Solomon Breuer, the son-in-law of Rav Hirsch, and the one who took his place in Frankfurt as the rabbi of the separatist uh, Orthodox community in Frankfurt, and a follower, therefore, of the Hirschian ideology of Tyrim Deracheritz. And he's addressing the, and he's, and he's speaking from the pulpit. And first of all, he's speaking in the vernacular, he's speaking in German. And, uh, which, you know, was, how can you speak in the vernacular, not speaking in Yiddish? And, and he is also addressing the women in the crowd. It was Hanukkah, and he's talking about one of the women heroes of Hanukkah, I think Yehudis, or whatever it was. And he's addressing the role of women, um, which was also an unheard of in Galicia. Rabbis in Galicia, um, if they were articulate altogether, they might speak about women to their husbands or fathers, but not to, or they would not address women directly and speak about their role and their importance. And she was very inspired, and she goes to speak to him. And he introduces her to the world of German Orthodoxy, Neo-Orthodoxy. And he introduces her to this forum of Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, Horeb, Choyrev, and, and the 19 Letters, which becomes basically the Bible of the Beis Yaakov movement. Uh, the Beis Yaakov movement curriculum was p- based very much on the writings of Rav Hirsch in the interwar period and, and was heavily influenced by uh, the the uh, the German Orthodox ideology and outlook in the fact also that they brought in uh, um, educators from Germany like uh, Dr. Judith Grunfeld, actually Grunfeld, she was um, something else, Grunbaum, something like that before before she was married, and Dr. Leo Deutschlander and others, and uh, very much influenced in curriculum and in their outlook by. German Orthodoxy. So we'll stop here for part three. In part four, we're going to talk, we're going to focus almost exclusively on Beis Yaakov and discuss how the movement was started, how it developed, and how it expanded and grew exponentially into a mass movement during the interwar uh, Poland. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, lectures, and sponsorships, virtual tours, and especially now, Sukkot is coming up if you want to be entertained with a virtual tour or a history lecture, or if you'd like to sponsor a, an episode of Jewish History Soundbites, please be in touch with me, and you can um, subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.